Recording? Is it on now? Okay. <clears throat> on January 20th, 1942, a man by the name of Reinhard Heydrich chief of the Reich Security Main Office, convenes the Wanzi Conference in a villa outside Berlin. At this conference, he presents plans to coordinate a European-wide final solution to the Jewish problem to key officials from the German state and the Nazi party. The final solution was the code name for the systematic, deliberate, physical annihilation of the European Jews. At some still undetermined time in 1941, Hitler authorized this European-wide scheme for mass murder. Sadly, this was not the first time that a man with power had authorized the destruction of the Jewish people. For around 2,400 years earlier from that time, another individual plotted to annihilate God's covenant people. And in this case, his plot to do so became a law. It became the law of the land. And my question is, how does a plot to persecute God's people become the law of the land? How does that happen? In the story we're going to read this morning, in our continuation of our story in the book of Esther, we're going to see the author gives us how such a decree to persecute and annihilate God's covenant people actually becomes the law of the land. Chapter 3. If you remember in chapter 1, the author gives us an explanation of why it was dangerous for God's people to be living within the Persian Empire. That's the whole point of chapter 1, was to specify, to detail, to emphasize that it was very dangerous for God's people to be living within the Persian Empire. Why was it so dangerous? And he listed the points in indirect ways, but he listed them. One of the reasons why was because the power, the Persian Empire was very wealthy and very, very powerful. And there was a leader in charge of it all. A powerful empire, a wealthy empire. One of the reasons why. Secondly, it was because there was a deterioration within the culture. The Persian Empire was deteriorating morally, which was seen by the king and the drunken parties that he was having. Thirdly, it was a dangerous place to live because the rulers who were ruling were making their decisions based on impaired judgment. They were making decisions. The king was made a decision to parade his wife while he was drunk in front of drunken men. Who does that? He wasn't thinking clearly. Now, our leaders today may not be making unwise decisions because they're drunk, maybe with alcohol, maybe they're drunk with pride, maybe they're drunk with ambition. 
Another reason why the Persian Empire was a dangerous place to live, because those who resided in the power structure of the day were scheming and plotting to accomplish their own purposes, not the sake of the people. And it was a dangerous place because they were making issues and orders and decrees that didn't make any sense. And they ended up making a decree that said all women had to be submissive to their husbands. That was the Persian Empire in the first chapter, which the author was saying it was a dangerous place for God's people to be living in. Think of the Persian Empire and think of America. How would you describe America today? Wealthy and powerful. I can't think of a time in my lifetime when the United States of America has not been the most powerful, the most wealthy nation on the planet. Can you recall a time in your lifetime when that was not the case? Our country and our society and our culture is deteriorating before our very eyes and that is expressed in so many ways. Decadence, a deterioration of culture because of a love of luxury and excess. We have leaders today making impaired judgment for a whole host of reasons. And we have people within our political power structure that are scheming and plotting for their own purposes and their own ambition. Are there orders and decrees being made today? that don't seem to make sense given our circumstances and situations in life. The point is, is that the Persian Empire is eerily similar to the United States of America at this point in time. And it was a dangerous place for God's people to be living in, in the Persian Empire. Five years after the decree that was made for women to be subservient to men, five years later came a decree whereby all of God's people living within the empire are to be annihilated. Five years later. So my question then becomes, how does such a decree that ended up becoming a law become a law? And Esther chapter 3 gives us the reason or the occasion how that happens. Number one, we're going to be looking at all of Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, a plot to persecute God's people was able to become the law of the land because, number one, God's people first refused to comply with a command that came from those who were in positions of power and leadership over them. That's how it starts, number one. Verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read here. You can look at the screen. Verses 1 and 2. After these things, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, promoted a man named Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all of the princes who were with him. And all of the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not pay homage. There's the command from the king. He exalts a person named Haman. Remember, this is happening right after Mordecai discovers a plot to rule the king, or to kill the king. And you would expect Mordecai to be exalted for what he did. And the Persian kings were notorious, notorious for doing that. 
They would exalt someone for a good deed. Here Mordecai, a Jew, discovers a plot to kill the king. The king finds out about it and doesn't do anything with Mordecai and exalts this man named Haman to second most powerful person in the empire. Okay? Mordecai does not abide by the command, which was to bow the knee, show him respect, and show him honor because of his position and his place in the Persian government. Mordecai doesn't do it. He will not do it. This has nothing to do with worshiping him. He's just not going to show him honor and respect. The first two verses doesn't give us the reason why. Why is Mordecai refusing to bow down to this man named Haman? The key to understanding this is the word Agagite. He was an Agagite. You say, what on earth is an Agagite? You have, to be, you have to be familiar with the Bible in the Old Testament to understand this. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel were, had left Egypt, they were going to go to the promised land. And all of a sudden, without any warning, they were attacked by a people group called the Amalekites. They attacked the Jewish people for no reason. And God told Moses, when you go into the promised land, there will be a time when I'm going to command you to destroy all of the Amalekites and their memory from the face of the earth. That's what he says. Time goes by. They go into the promised land. They inherit the land. And then God tells Saul, the very first king of Israel, I want you to now go to Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and wipe them out. That's what he said. Now remember, Saul, the first king, is a descendant of Kish, and he's a Benjamite. Remember that. Okay? So Saul goes, and he does partially what God told him to do. The prophet Samuel goes to Saul and says, Why didn't you do what the, king, what the Lord wanted you to do? He was disobedient. And so we see right then and there, there is conflict between the Agagites and the tribe of Benjamin, descendants of Kish. And who was Mordecai? Mordecai was a descendant of Kish, a Benjamite. So what you're seeing here is a, a, a conflict between tribes. And Mordecai knows that this Agagite has power over him. And because of their history, he's not going to have anything to do with bowing to the, the knee to this person. So there's a tribal conflict that's going on here. And Mordecai will not bow the knee. I am not going to show respect. The reason why it, this decree, this plot, which hasn't started yet, becomes a law is because, number one, an individual within the power structure of Persia refused to give respect and homage and, and honor to a person who was against God and all of his ways. First, that's what starts the whole thing. Okay? Secondly, a plot to persecute God's people was able to become the law of the land because others within the empire became offended and irritated at God's people's open disregard for a public policy. Verses 3 and 4. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Why aren't you doing what the king told you to do? Now it happened when they spoke to Mordecai daily that he would not listen to them. And they told it to Haman. 
to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Here we see there's a command given by the king. Mordecai doesn't do it. He doesn't abide by it. Haman has no idea this is going on at this time. He has no clue. Okay? And the people see that Mordecai is not doing what Haman said he should do, what the king said he should do. And they are upset because why does this person, why is this Mordecai not doing what we all have to do? We have to bow the knee and show respect. Why is he not doing it? And they did this day after day, and they were getting irritated because they see this stubbornness in this Jew, which is the clue as to the reason why he's not, he's not bowing down. He's Jewish. His values and his beliefs as a child of God were radically different from that from Haman. And so he wasn't going to bow down to it. And the other people who weren't children of God saw that. And they see what Mordecai is doing as, oh, let's say, unpatriotic. You're not being a true Persian. How could you flout the king's command by not bowing the knee? What makes you so special that you don't have to do that? And so when they got sick of it, they go to Haman and they say, okay, let's see if you're going to do it now. Let's see, let's see if the government is going to let him get away with it. Let's see if that's going to happen. So they go and tell Haman. So now Haman knows. That's how it starts. You have a command from authority on high. God's people don't abide by it because it goes against their values and their principles as children of the living God, as Christian, as, as, as children of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And those who don't know our God have to abide by the, 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 the policies that's made and they get upset because the Christian's not doing it. What makes them so special? They're the problem. We, gotta have, we have to get rid of these Christians the salt of the earth, we have to get rid of them. Back in the first century, they tried to do the same thing under Nero, the Roman emperor, who when Rome burned in AD 64, the Roman emperor blamed it on the Christians, says it's their fault. We can see how this is starting to bubble up. There is animosity by, to the, uh, to, towards the people of God from the greater society now. Thirdly, a plot to persecute God's people was able to become the law of the land because there existed a hatred for God's people as a whole from those who wielded power. Verses 5 through 7. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. In other words, he's Jewish. And Haman, once he found out who he was, that he was Jewish, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, 
which is in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And what's going on here is that in the Persians, what they would do at the very beginning of the year, they would try to figure out what day would be a good day, the best day, to ensure a policy's success. And so they would roll out the dice, if you will, to see on what day would be the best day that would ensure success in killing all the Jewish people. And that's what's happening here. But you see, that's how much his hatred was for the Jewish people when he found out Mordecai was a Jew. There was an opportunity to take a personal insult and make it into a nationwide policy. Hatred was at the very core of this. And whenever someone gets in a position of power and they do not like what you believe and what you think as a believer, look out. It lays the foundation by which persecution of God's people begins. Fourthly, a plot to persecute God's people was able to become the law of the land because those who had power successfully manipulated others through the means of slander and bribery. Verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, he goes to the king now, who's got the power. There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Notice, he's very general. He doesn't name the people. He's very general. Manipulative tactic. There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. Their laws are different from all the other people's. That's true. And they do not keep the king's laws. False. There's no evidence that all of the people were not obeying the king's command here. It was just Mordecai. But what he did was take this personal slight and and extrapolated it to all of God's people and says, they're all not doing this. No, they weren't. You don't know that. But he made it, he, he spun it that way to try to accomplish his objective through a weak king. That's what he was doing. And he slandered them because he was saying something about someone, about a people group, that was not accurate. That's slander. So that was a manipulative tactic that he's, that he's employing here. Now we go to uh, bribery. He continues, If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Oh. How many people give in to the temptation of bribery? Give them some cash and they'll bend the law, break the law to do what you want to get done, done. If persecution of God's people ever happens here in this nation, you will see that happen. There will be people in power who will manipulate and will slander God's people, saying something about them that's not accurate about God's people. That has been the case throughout Christianity's history. And they will use bribery to accomplish it. Manipulation. Characteristic of government's gone bad. Fifthly, 
A plot to persecute God's people was able to become the law of the land because the king of this world had authorized it. Verses 10 through 12. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Not good. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as it seems good to you. You see how easy it was to manipulate him? He's, he's so aloof, this guy. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. You say, what is a signet ring? That's the key. The, the, the signet ring was a symbol of the king's authority. When he wanted to make a document and formalize it and make it into a law, to make it official, he would take his signet ring and he would impress upon it in clay tablets in which the document was now made official. And in order for Haman to get this, this plot of his into a law, it had to be authorized by the king of this world. At that time, it was who? Ahasuerus. But we know who the king of this world is, don't we? Luke 4 to 5 through 8 says this. This is Jesus when he was being tempted by the devil. So the king, or excuse me, then the devil, taking Jesus on a high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all authority I will give you and their glory, for this, this authority has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. Any such decree that is implemented in our world is going to be authorized from the God of this world, and we know him to be Satan. And believe you me, he is behind all of the stuff that goes on in our world that is antagonistic to God's people and the values that we hold near and dear as believers in Jesus Christ. That is how it becomes a law. It was a dangerous time to be a child of God in the Persian Empire at that time. And it was finally expressed in a very clear way by a law that had been decreed by those in power. And ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, we're on that path. We're going down that path. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And unless that happens, we're in trouble. This is a wake-up call for the church. A wake-up call for the church. The events that's going on in our world today is... Steering in that direction, the parallels between the Persian Empire and America is uncanny. And it needs to be heard today. People in power need to hear it. They're not going to like it, but that's not our job. We need to be faithful and salt in an ungodly society. And we can see what's going on in our culture today, in our political system, and our lack of leadership. We're in trouble, folks. There are two observations concerning Haman's law. Two observations concerning his decree that I want to point out to fill out the rest of the chapter. Number one, 
Haman's decree was aimed at uniting all of the citizens of the empire against God's people. His perp, the decree was aimed at uniting all of the people within the empire against the people of God, verses 13 and 14. And the Jews, and, and the letters were sent by couriers into all of the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, a year later which is in the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. He wants everybody in on this. This has to be an empire-wide movement, because after all, it's the Christians that's the problem. It's their stubbornness and their refusal to compromise their beliefs and their values that's the issue. And if they're not willing to, 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 to bow the knee, then get rid of them. This is history. This happened. Another motive behind Haman's decree was this. The motive behind Haman's decree was not revealed to the public. The motive behind the law is never revealed to the public at large. Verse 15. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Susa the citadel. And so the king and Haman sat down to drink. They weren't bothered by it. But the city of Susa was perplexed. Why are they perplexed? Why, why are they confused? Because they, don't, they do not understand why the decree was made. Why would such a decree be made empire-wide? It makes no sense to the common person. You know why it doesn't make sense to them? Because they don't know the motive behind all of it. They don't understand and know the hatred of the individual who's in power, who's orchestrated the whole thing. That's why. I want to read with you something I read not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, regarding an order or a decree that was made by a particular political leader because of the pandemic. One particular leader's, quote, order has resulted in anxiety and confusion in some quarters. For example, because big box stores were told to close, areas devoted to carpet, flooring, furniture, gardens, and plants, and paint, among other measures, this resulted in four people, including the owner of a lawn care company, to sue his, this politician in federal court, alleging a violation of their constitutional rights. But did you see how that the, the, the writer here, the language that they used, that there was anxiety and confusion because of the order that was given? It didn't seem to make sense given the, the pandemic. No one's arguing with the fact that we should be taking the appropriate measures. But some of the orders that were being issued do not seem to be consistent with the circumstances in which we find ourselves in. And people were confused because of it. The same kind of confusion that took place thousands of years ago when this issue to, to, to annihilate the Jewish people took place. We can see the seeds and the environment in which we live is conducive for something like this to happen in the future. And unless the church wakes up, and cries out and raises their voice when it needs to be raised. 
we're in trouble. And you say, why, why, this, why you bring this message today? Well, this is the next chapter in the book of Esther, which we're looking at. But you know something in all of this? What's the good news? God knew this was going to happen. He knew it. I know he knew it. Because in the second chapter, what did he do? Do you remember? He raised up a woman named Esther and put her in a position who is queen. Because he knew what Haman was going to do. He had strategically put a woman in power that would eventually frustrate the plans of Haman. And the question is for you and for me as God's people living in such a time, what is he asking and calling you to do? That's the question. If God knows this is going to happen, then how is he going to use you, men and women, graduates, in our society, in our world, to be the salt of the earth? What's he calling you to do? Will we have the courage to raise our voices, to act in ways that are consistent with the values and the beliefs of the one who died for us on a cross? As much as we want to be patriotic when the nation in which we live goes against the very values and principles of the very, of the very foundation of which they say is built, which is Christianity, we Christians need to speak. Our number one allegiance is not to America. Our number one allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to speak truth to Americans. That's our number one allegiance. So what is God calling you to do? We live in a dangerous world, a hostile world. God told us that. And we're seeing evidence of that as the days continue to unfold. And believe this, God will raise up men and women to frustrate plans like this. Be alert, be sober, be vigilant. Because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is true. But we have a God who is ultimately in control. And though there are people in this world who would love to see something like this happen in our land. God is in control and nothing will happen without his say-so. May we be found faithful in the midst of it all. May our eyes see through his eyes by being in the word and living out its values and be committed to him in the midst of it all so that people can see your faith in him in the midst of it, drawing them to himself. That's how it will look like if a law becomes, when a decree becomes a law in this land, to persecute God's people. That's the blueprint. May we be aware of it and live a life of faithfulness in the midst of it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a tough word, Lord, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a true word. It's from your word, so we, not, we need to speak it. We are called to declare the whole counsel of God and to do so faithfully and with conviction. May that be true in all of our lives. And though we may be in a, in a, in a, on a path of living in a place that is dangerous for various reasons, help us to be found faithful. Draw us nearer to you. 
Give us a greater passion and a knowledge and an understanding of your word so that we can be equipped and live in a way that honors you in the midst of it all. Let our light shine bright in the dark world so that people will know who you are. For it is your kingdom that is going to be permanent. It is your kingdom that will last forever. No earthly kingdom will. And so, Lord, help us to know that, understand that, believe that, and to live it. And we'll give you all the glory and the praise that you alone deserve, for you are alive. Amen. I'll ask you now to please stand to continue our worship as we sing, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, verses 1, 3, and 4. Oh. Um.